All right, good morning, everybody. My name's Kurt. I help out with the youth around here um, about as much as I can. And I also teach fifth grade over at the middle school, fifth grade math. And it's kind of funny because just a couple stories to share with you before I get started. One of my students, um, I guess somehow she found out that I was preaching this this morning. I certainly did not advertise it. And she found out, and after class, she comes up to me, and she says, she's very confused. She's looking at me like, this does not add up. I mean, I'm a 95% goofball in class, so I think she's trying to, like, put Mr. Funk on stage. It's not adding up in her head. And she looks at me, and she goes, so you're preaching. Is Pastor Brian sick? (laughs) Not the best compliment I've ever received, right? And I'm like, well, no, I don't think he's sick. Um, But that didn't do it for her. And so she says, okay, well, if you're preaching, what is Pastor Brian doing all week? (laughs) And um, I assured her that he had probably a very large to-do list. Maybe he could finally get caught up on. Um, And one of those things is actually him and both Pastor Dustin and him came to Wednesday Night Remix Youth Group, and it was a time where they got to sit there, and our youth got to ask them any questions they wanted. And so we met as small groups before, and we came up with these lists, and it was like this perfect mix of like funny, interesting, and also really serious as well. It was a good time. But the very first question that, that Pastor Brian had to answer, and Dustin as well, was, was this, how do I woo a girl into liking me? <laughs> so... I was thinking at that moment that Pastor Brian was very, very much out of his comfort zone, and uh, it made me feel better about coming up here this morning. So quick announcement for tonight, we have our annual congregational council meeting. That starts at 6 o'clock. You can come at 5.30. There will be free milkshakes made by some of the youth, staff, and volunteers. Um, It's a great time. We encourage you to come. We encourage you to come with your questions. You can pick up a packet outside of the, in the lobby here if there's any left, um, and, and kind of read through that stuff before. About the only thing we don't want you to do is come at 5.30, get a milkshake, and then leave before council. We look down on that option. So um, we hope to see you there. So before we get started, let me just pray for our time this morning. God, you're so good. You're so good. And I just pray as we gaze towards the cross this morning, as we, we focus on the cross I just pray you keep us humble, Lord. I pray that you allow us to be in touch with the Holy Spirit in which which you freely give us. Thank you for that gift. Just work in our hearts this morning, Lord, in your name I pray. Amen. So context in any situation is pretty important. It's a pretty critical uh, element to understanding any situation fully. I think we'd all agree. And as a teacher... Understanding my students, I need to know the entire picture before I'm willing to put like a judgment or a thought process towards those students. And I learned this the hard way in my first two years of teaching, all right? I, I made the mistake of putting students in certain categories before I even understood the context. And so now as I teach, like there might be a behavior problem or a motivation problem, but there's always an answer to it, and it normally stems like what type of situation they're dealing with at home. So as a teacher, I need to be fully aware of the context of any situation. My wife called me a couple weeks ago um, at school, and it was my planning period, so I picked up the phone. I said, hey, Kel, how are you? Um, 
small talk for a little bit, and eventually she says, hey, hold on a second. Elliot is in the garage. She's throwing the cat in the air. And she puts the phone down. I didn't get, a, I didn't get an explanation. I got no context. So I'm very confused. I'm like, what's wrong with my daughter? Why is she, why is she harming animals? And this is like, what is going on when I'm at work? This is ridiculous. And so eventually, Kelly comes back, and she gets on the phone, and I get to hear the context. Well, apparently, my wife had taught my daughter a lesson on gravity earlier in the day, and, and my daughter was then taking that out and testing the effects on the cat. As a teacher, we call that meaningful learning. That's good. Um, but the context is critical for me to fully understand that situation. And the same is true with the scripture that Paul read this morning. For us to fully understand what we're about to read, what we're about to dissect and go through, we need to understand where Paul is coming from. And here's the answer to that. The Apostle Paul, who wrote, the, who wrote these six verses, is currently waiting a life or death sentence in prison in Rome. He is in chains, and he's just waiting for the emperor to decide. That's the context. And to add to that, he was falsely imprisoned. He shouldn't be there in the first place. And so when you know that element of the six verses, it kind of makes the verses hold more weight to them. You know, if he was sitting on a Hawaiian island somewhere, they're not going to be as powerful verses. But the context is that he is in chains waiting a life or death sentence. And so as we dissect these verses, think about where Paul is coming from. So let's start with verse 4. Verse 4 says, Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. So Paul tells us twice to have this joy. He literally says, I say it again. And he also points out that the source of the joy comes from a relationship in the Lord. Right there it is. And we have to understand that joy is significantly different than happiness in this context. They are not the same thing. All right? They're not the same thing. Paul is talking about this deep down joy, this peace that takes place regardless of our circumstances. It's not this, this, this happiness here, this happiness there. It's not this, I feel happy because my, my football team won on a Sunday. All right, I mentioned that we had a cat. I'm very allergic to cats. It was not a good decision. As parents, we make bad decisions probably more often than we care to admit. But my daughter, Devin, she, she was three at the time, and we're like, man, every time Devin sees kittens, she just lights up. And so we made, made a very poor parenting decision, and we got a kitten. I feel like I'm slowly getting kicked out of my own home. But I got to tell you, it was almost worth it the first time Devin got to see that kitten because of how her face lit up the happiness that I got to see. And every day when she goes and plays with the kitten, the happiness that, that I get to see in that. Again, it's a different word. We're not talking about this circumstantial happiness that takes place. We are talking about a deep down joy that can only be found in the Lord, as Paul points out in verse four. So jumping to verse five, Paul says, let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. And so he connects the idea that if you have joy in the Lord, a big part of this is that everyone needs to see it. There's action there. It's not just this knowledge. Okay, I understand that my joy comes from the Lord. People actually need to see it to be taking place in your life. On to verse 6. He says, don't worry about anything anything. And again, the context is huge because Paul is in pretty much the worst situation you can think about. We don't have worse situations than that. Wrongly imprisoned, waiting a death sentence. That's it. And so he says, don't worry about anything. And that holds value because of where he's at. 
And he gives us a better option. He says, instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And you get this idea through prayer that we can, we can come with our requests when he says, tell him what you need, and our praises and thank him for all he's done. And a lot of times our prayer is structured around those two things. And then in verse 7, which is deeply connected to verse 6, he says, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And so this is the first cause and effect relationship out of these six verses. Paul essentially says, all right, if you pray about everything, if that's you, then the effect of that prayer is going to be that you have God's peace. Our entire message series is called Discovering Joy. So if you pray about everything, then the effect is that you do get to discover this joy and peace. And it exceeds anything we can understand. It's something that's not even explainable. Then on to verse 8, he says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. We're going to come back to this in a minute. On to verse 9, he says, Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. And here's Paul's second cause and effect relationship. One verse later. He says, keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. So if you put things into practice, your knowledge about me, your knowledge of Scripture, if you put this into practice, the effect of that is going to be that the God of peace is with you. And so according to Paul, in these six verses, we receive peace, we discover joy when we do two things. When we pray about everything, that comes from verse 6, and when we put into practice what we know. And that comes from verse 9. And when he says pray about everything, he's not talking about this, this like on your hands and knees prayer all day long throughout the day. No, he's talking about being in constant communication with what we call the Holy Spirit. You see, if you have Jesus in your life, that means you have access to the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about you need to be in constant communication with this because that is how you live a Jesus-centered life. And putting into practice what we know, it means that you can't just have all this knowledge of Jesus. You can't just have all this knowledge of the Bible and the Word and have all of it what you're supposed to do. Paul is reminding us, if you truly want the peace of Jesus Christ, then you need to live this out. And the entire gospel message is focused around living out your faith. So let's go back to verse 8. Now, dear brothers, sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, and pure, and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And here's the bottom line, church. The number one fill-in-the-blank word and answer for every single one of those words up there is the cross. The cross is the number one thing that is true and honorable and right. It's the number one thing that is excellent. It is the entire reason that Jesus is worthy of our praise because he died and he rose again. Paul is reminding us, he just gives us word after word, synonym after synonym of the same thing, and we're supposed to fix our eyes on, on Jesus. And so I want to talk about that this morning. Because we know the story of Jesus. We know Christmas. We know Easter. But sometimes I think we just need reminded of the absolute ridiculous sacrifice it was for Jesus on this cross. 
So let's start with crucifixion in general. All right? Crucifixion is not something that was just around for like Jesus' time. It was perfected over time. It actually start, it, it, in Persia, the Persians were the ones that kind of added this, this crossbar to the mix, if you will, this horizontal beam. So like the cross was not one piece. It would have been two separate pieces, your vertical beam and your horizontal beam. The Persians are the ones that added the horizontal beam. All right? But the Romans who crucified Jesus, they were the ones who really did perfect crucifixion. They are the ones who were good at it. They are the ones that enjoyed it. They actually competed over it, all right? The goal was who could inflict the most pain possible without causing the person to die right away. So we're talking most pain, most suffering possible without the person dying until the very last second. The Romans prided themselves on perfecting the crucifixion process. You're talking about something that was absolutely shameful. It was excruciating. It was designed to humiliate you, yes, physically, but it was also designed to humiliate you emotionally, spiritually, mentally. They basically wanted to dehumanize you. That was their goal. And here's the kicker, ready? It was done in public areas for everybody to watch. So this was state-sponsored, government-sponsored money that was putting this forth. The Romans did it often. They enjoyed it, all right? Historically, Spartacus and his 6,000 men, they were all cru- when they were captured, they were all crucified in the same day. You are talking about a group of people that pride themselves on this method of execution. Historically, you can read that the body was allowed to stay up on the cross up to nine days. And so if you were in that area, you could literally taste, you could smell the body decomposing. As a reminder that, hey, you better be in the status quo. You better fit the mold. Otherwise, this is coming your direction. So let's move to Jesus then. Let's connect the dots. We know that Jesus died on the cross, but have you ever thought about the emotional torment and the emotional suffering that took place for Jesus before leading up to that cross? I mean, let's be honest for a second. One of Jesus' best friends is the one who betrayed him. One of his best, his closest friends, one of his 12 disciples. And yes, Jesus knew it had to happen. Yes, he knew it was coming, but guess what? It doesn't make it hurt any less. Judas gets a bad rap. Yeah, he sold Jesus out for like this, this, this fix of happiness and, and, and money. But don't forget, Judas, he taught. He healed with Jesus. He prayed with Jesus. He was there the entire time. And for it to come from one of his closest friends, that's got to hurt. In the Garden of Gethsemane, that's a big one, he was so distraught, he literally sweat blood days before. It's a medical condition known as hematidrosis. Imagine the emotional torment for somebody to sweat blood. And then you have the physical suffering. All right? So Jesus is, is emotionally wounded, and now he's going into the physical part of the suffering. You know about the crown of thorns, but sometimes we forget that first, before the cross, Jesus was what we call scourged. All right? His hands were tied down on the pole in the middle of the public arena. And they took turns. They had two guards hit him up to 39 times. The reason they had two guards is because one probably would have gotten tired, and they wanted strike number 30 to be equally as powerful as strike one and two. They didn't want to let you off the hook in any way. And so they would hit you with this thing called, it was a whip that was called a flagrum. And this thing had leather straps on the end of it. And on the very ends of this thing, you had bone and rock and glass kind of all crunched up together. And the entire point of this thing, it was designed that once it sticks to your skin, it would rip the flesh off of your body. 
39 times, coming around the front, coming on the face, coming on the back. It was said that someone could be unrecognizable even to the closest family and friends after they were scorched. You're talking about severe blood loss, massive internal bleeding. And this is all on top of the emotional suffering that Jesus endured. So after this takes place, Jesus is beaten half to death. He is forced to carry this 200-pound cedar beam. Romans said, listen, you're not done yet. Our party's not over. We're not done making a spectacle of the king of Jews. So you're going to put this on your back, and you're going to walk up there, and when you get up there, we're finally going to finish the deal. And the only place he's going to be able to carry this cedar beam would be on top of his back at this moment. And so they hoist it up on Jesus' back and his shoulders so he has his legs and his back and and his hands over top so all three things can work together again. He has just been beaten half to death. And he starts walking. Can you picture your Savior walking through the crowds, an aisle probably about this size, people pointing, laughing, spitting, cursing, you name it, high-fiving. This is a moment to celebrate for these people. They've been waiting to do this. Again, he's physically, he's emotionally exhausted and he falls down. I want you to think about somebody who's falling down with 200 pounds of pressure behind their neck on top of their shoulders. I want you to think about them falling down to their face. He has nothing to brace himself and his face and his chest crush against the floor with 200 pounds of force right behind it. Historians equate that to a high-speed crash without an airbag. But again, they're not done yet, so they get somebody to carry the cross for them, and they, they, they move them up to the place of crucifixion. And so he arrives at the place of crucifixion, and we know the nails were driven in his hands and his feet, and he's put up on the cross for everybody to see. I mean, Jesus' birth mother was there. Think of the pain. His disciples were there. Think of the suffering. They had seen this guy perform miracles. They had seen this guy serve and teach, and they knew what he was about, and they have got to be thinking, Jesus, please come down. Please save yourself. Come on. Show them your power. People still cursing, people still throwing things people still mocking him in every single way possible. And despite all of the suffering, this is what Jesus does. He still shows them compassion. He still shows them mercy. He looks to his side. He says, brother, today we will be in paradise together. He, he calls out among the crowd, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even up to his final moments, he is still ministering. He cries out for a drink, They put the vinegar up to his lips, more mockery, more humiliation. At one point he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? So now you have this immense dynamic of spiritual suffering. You have emotional suffering, physical suffering, spiritual suffering. They are trying to break Jesus, our Savior, down in every single way possible. They're the best at it. They're the ones qualified for the job. They need to humiliate him in every sense of the word. Can you picture him there? Can you picture Jesus breathing up on the cross for you, for me, completely undeserved? 
The Romans were so good at this. They were so good at this that a typical death of somebody was to suffocate on the cross. Can you picture Jesus lifting his body up and breathing and then resting and going back down and lifting his body up and breathing and going back down and resting? Can you picture him? And then in John 19, 30, in Matthew 27, 5, Jesus, he lifts up and he says, It is finished! Scripture says he calls out loudly. A dying, a suffocating man calls out loudly that it's finished. It's over. He takes his final breath. And when he says it is finished, that is exactly, exactly what it means. We have nothing to add to it. We sang the song once and for all. It was a once and done thing. It is finished. Church, here's the irony of this entire story. Here's the irony of this entire situation. That horrible, gruesome, graphic, true representation of the cross, that is our source of joy. Through that, we get to claim complete joy and peace. It makes absolutely no sense what he did for us. You see, the context of our joy, the context of our joy, it lies in the death and then the resurrection of our king. Our joy is not a temporary happiness fix. It's not. And in this culture, it can be very, very hard to decipher the two sometimes. We are a blessed nation. We have a lot of stuff at our disposal. And sometimes it's easy when you don't feel too great just to go buy something or to go travel somewhere and fill and like put a Band-Aid on the wound that only Jesus can truly, truly heal. It's what we do. And I think when I really experienced this, this level of joy is when I got to go to Africa a bunch of years ago. Because I saw a bunch of people who had absolutely nothing. They had absolutely nothing. And they, were, they had way more joy than I did. Sometimes all this stuff just gets in the way of our eyes being on that cross. I think of my buddy Jake Kaufman. Jake serves in Remix with us. He's a great guy. He's done it for a long time. Jake got to celebrate one of the happiest days of his life last June. Right? He got married. So his longtime girlfriend, he got married, and they, they got to celebrate together. Just what a happy moment. And then a few months later, Jake is diagnosed with brain cancer. Can you imagine just, I mean, I can't, but can you imagine going from such a happy experience to pretty much something so awful and miserable? Can you imagine what that does to your emotions? That's hard. And sometimes you're like, that's one of those situations you're like, God, why? What's going on here? And yet, if you go talk to Jake, all right, him and his family go to this church. If you go up to Jake and you say, hey, Jake, how you doing, bud? How's it going? Nine times out of ten, do you know what his answer is? I just feel so blessed. I just feel so blessed. Man. Times are hard right now, but I feel so blessed. That doesn't make sense to me. 
In my head, I'm thinking, what do you mean you feel blessed? You're driving every day 45 minutes to go get radiation, to go get chemotherapy. You're supposed to be in the first year of message. You're battling cancer. That is not blessed. It's his answer. Do you know why it's his answer? It is because his eyes are fixed not on things of this world, not on temporary happiness fixes. His eyes are fixed on verse 8. His eyes are fixed on things that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and worthy of praise. His eyes are fixed on the cross. In Philippians chapter 1, 27 to 30, Paul, he spoke to the church in Philippi about the threat of suffering. In Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4, Paul spoke to them about the unity of the church and the problem with self-centeredness. Pastor Brian, last week, talked more about unity in our church. And now, in these six verses, there's this heavy focus about worry and depression and anxiety. And Paul is reminding us that the answer has been the same all along. The answer has been to focus on Jesus himself, to refocus on the cross. That's your answer. So we refocus on the cross, and then verse 9 comes into play. Then we put into practice what we learn and what we receive. And part of putting this information, part of putting our knowledge of Jesus into practice deals in with our interaction with other people. I feel like a lot of times we focus on our own joy. But what does this idea of joy, our complete joy, mean for other people? You see, people, they question our source of joy. They do. When they're going through hard times or even good times, they question, how could a loving God allow this to happen? How could you follow a God that does so-and-so? You fill in the blank. We've all had experiences like this. Paul already tells us in verse 7 that we aren't going to have the answer. Paul says that you will end up with a peace that goes beyond our understanding. And so Paul already tells us we're not going to be able to answer these questions. We try really, really hard to, but he already tells us it's going to be above our understanding. And it makes me think of a time when I was teaching in kindergarten. All right? So a couple of years ago, it's my formal observation in kindergarten. And basically in teacher talk, well, Mannheim anyway, your formal observation is a 90-minute block of time that's going to dictate the type of teacher you are for the next three years. All right? Some system's better than no system. All right? So I'm getting my, 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 my lesson ready. I feel good about it. I don't get too nervous about stuff like this because I kind of just show up and I, I do the job the best I can. We'll see what happens, right? But I am nervous about this one. One, because I'm teaching kindergarten. That's not really my comfort zone. Two, it's because my principal, she's, she's intimidating, all right? She's an intimidating lady. And so I'm all ready. I'm doing my lesson with my guided reading group. I have three students around my table with me. We're going through the book. Everything is is going magical. It's great. They're talking with each other. They're reading. They're, They're using their context clues. You name it. And then it's time for me to summarize their learning. And I look at the one girl and I say, hey, can you tell me some key details of the book we just read? I'll never forget this girl because she has this purple shirt on with this pink glittery heart on her sweatshirt. And she looks at me, kind of confused. I'm thinking, oh, great. And finally she says, Mr. Funk, I do not know. I do not know. But then she goes down and she says, but you know what? You see this heart? 
This heart means I love you. And she gets out of her seat and she walks around my table and she gives me a hug. Cute, right? (laughs) Sometimes I do miss teaching kindergarten. If a fifth grader did that, it wouldn't be cute. But when we're looking for the answers for, for these people, when people question our source of joy, too many times we try to fix it, too many times we try to solve it, too many times we have this plan, when all we need to do sometimes is say, listen, I don't know. I don't know. But do you see this cross? You see this cross? That means he loves you. That means he died for you too. People need to see from verse 5, Jesus represented in our lives. Again, the song we sang this morning, once and for all, it means it's already taken place, which means Jesus is not going to re- Um, go through this process at the Mannheim football stadium. It's not going to happen. It means that Jesus, he's in heaven. He is not walking around Lidditz or Mount Joy or Mannheim or E-Town, wherever you're from. People are not going to see him. The way they see the cross, the way they see Jesus is through us. The message is simple. Everything we know about Jesus, everything, our knowledge about Jesus, it's pretty much meaningless unless we live that knowledge out. So how do we put it into practice? How do we do what Paul challenges us to do? How do we put this into practice? So I'm going to give you some homework since I'm a teacher. And just like my students, some of you will probably do it, some of you won't, but... That's how it goes. But your homework is this. With your wife, with your spouse, by yourself, with your family, it doesn't really matter. Go home and read about Jesus. Go pick up the word. Go pick up the gospel message. Read about the life of Jesus. Study it. Read about his message. Read about his, his miracles. Read about the way he loves people. Read about his entire ministry. Read about it. And then pray like crazy. Take some time and pray like crazy that your life can reflect the same type of life that Jesus lived out. You see, we are Christians. That means we are Christ-like. At some point, we have to go pick up the gospel message. We have to realize how Jesus lived, and we have to do our best to replicate that. It's not really an option. It's kind of an instruction. And in this passage of Scripture, Paul is telling us, if you actually want to have complete joy, if you actually want to have peace that goes above understanding, this is a requirement for you. It's something you need to do. And I say pray like crazy because it's going to be hard. Trust me. I'm nervous about giving a homework assignment like this because I know it applies to me too. It's going to be so hard. Do you know why? Because when we start living out the life of Jesus, it really messes with how we live around here. It really, really does. Nowhere in the gospel, nowhere in scripture are you going to find the passage that tells you to live the most comfortable Christian version of the American dream possible. It's not there. And yet sometimes that's all we buy into. And so my question is, how in the world are we going to experience joy? And secondly, how in the world are others that don't have that joy going to figure out this joy 
if we're keeping it all to ourselves. If we know a lot about God, it only saves us. But if we take that knowledge and we live out a life that represents the cross, then others get to see the same joy that we have in our lives. And that's when people come and rely on Jesus Christ. We're going to close with a song called Jesus Paid It All. I can't think of a better song to close out after talking about the very fact that he did pay it all. But as we sing this song, as the words go through our heads and our minds, I just pray that you reflect on the implications that that cross, him paying it all, indeed led to our complete joy. And it goes beyond just our own lives. It goes into how it affects the lives of others around us as well. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your cross. Thank you that you pay the price once and for all. Lord, I don't know why you did. I know we didn't deserve it. I know we didn't deserve it, Lord, but you did. And Lord, we are so humbled by that. Allow us to go home to pick up our Bibles, to pick up the gospel. And Lord, allow us to pray that we can represent you more clearly to the people in this world. Amen.